Okay, since we last talked, there's been a little bit more infrastructure built up around this crazy idea. Um, number one, we have a name. This is the Modern Liminal Podcast, um, which we will define and talk about here in a second. Um, number two, I, we will get to a schedule. I think right now it's going to be once, maybe twice a week, just so we can get through some of this like setup content, which is definitions of a few things, operating principles, just kind of the ground level. I was talking to my friend Holland, who's my favorite sounding board for things like this. We always have the most cosmic conversations. And she's like, you, you are ready to dive in the deep end. The rest of us, however, we need a few things laid out, defined, and um, set as like a as like a level set, right? So we're going to do some of that tonight and over the next couple episodes. Um, number three, I've decided that the river actually is my favorite recording studio. So you will hear other sounds of people doing things in Idaho Falls. It's not going to be crazy because it's a tiny town, but um, there's a whole lot of like um, self-doubt and fear that comes with like putting something out into the universe. And the more steps it takes to get from like my brain out of my mouth and into your ears, the more likely it is to not get there at all. So we're just going to toss all the nice recording equipment I have out the window, not literally, and just do this like walk and talk style. I'm sure as it turns into winter, we will have to rethink the strategy, but that's fine for now. Um, so yeah, so tonight what we're talking about is ritual, like what it is, why it's important and how does it make a difference in my life? What does it do for me? Right. Um, I was in a religion class at some point in my life and, um, my professor accused me jokingly cause he feels the same way that I have a very functional definition of religion. I want to know where the rubber meets the road. Like, what is this thing? What is this set of beliefs or activities or whatever? What do they do for me? And that comes from a very long intellectual relationship with my, uh, the religion I grew up in. And always constantly asking this question, like, okay, I love doing these intellectual exercises, but if I know these things and have learned these things and they're not changing my behavior, like making me a better person or a more empathetic person or a more transformed person, then what is it really for? That could be any level of educational pursuit. What makes it, what makes religious pursuit of knowledge different? And I realized it came down to a couple things for me. Number one is the relationship between ritual and liminal space. So liminal space, we're going to start there since it's in the title. Um, Liminal space is any space between two other spaces. Okay. So you've got doorways. You obviously think of doorways or gates, um, borders, boundaries, things like that. It's any, any space that you would have to traverse or cross rivers, obviously. So this is kind of appropriate that we're doing it here. Um, yeah, so any, any of those spaces like that. Now, what makes a liminal space useful to you in a ritual sense is when it's take, like when you have a ritual 
that carries you from one state of being to another and you transform through that liminal moment, right? So you put whatever space or mindset you're currently in, you're able to leave it, enter into a space where there's no, we're going to talk about chaos versus um, cosmos here in a second, where there's no organization necessarily other than the actual physical act of that ritual. And by the end of the performance of that ritual, you're in another space altogether. So you've transformed into something different altogether. Um, <laughs> some long borders going by. <laughs> so, this is great. This is real content, people. So <clears throat> that space can be can be very useful or it can just be a going through the motions. Um, and I'm talking to my friend Holland a couple of years ago now for a tutorial series she was doing for some clients. We kind of landed on this idea that the difference between a ritual and routine is simply intention, right? You can have a routine of going to the gym after work or getting up in the morning and uh, brushing your teeth, right? Or or any of those things that seem mundane, right? Um, or you can turn that into a ritual, and the difference there is intention. Like, I'm going to get up and move my body and in an effort to better listen to it and help it go from sleeping to awake state, right? Or I'm going to <laughs> make sure that I listen to um, books on tape or religious music or even like loud rock and roll music after work on my commute home so that I have left that mindset of work and that very like type A driver personality at work and I can come home and be a loving, thoughtful father, mother, brother, sister, whatever, right? Um, yeah, one of the first places that I learned where I learned how to kind of stay, take a step back from my the religious perspective I was born into and really understand what that was that ritual was doing for me was by reading um, The Sacred and the Profane by Mircea Eliade, who's a French writer and philosopher in the 20s, 1920s-ish, um, maybe a little bit earlier than that. And his work focused on exactly this. Like, he took a look at all cultures, all history across time, space, doesn't matter, domination, and ask, like, what does ritual do for the believer? Like, when I'm in the middle of whatever the sacred rite is, what is happening to me? What do I believe is happening to me? Um, and he, he arrived at this conclusion that I've laid out to you, is that this is, ritual is transformative. It allows you to go from profane space, which is your normal everyday life, into sacred space, or back to original myth, right? So if you have attended a Christian church of any denomination, this is the idea behind communion, right? Any kind of communion, whether you believe in transubstantiation or not. Your, what you're doing there is performing a ritual that's supposed to transport you back to, <laughs> back to that original moment where Christ died for your sins and atoned for them. And you're going to be one with him, hence the word atonement. And that's, that's what's going to create a new person. It's going to be transformative, is that ritual. Okay? So same thing happens um, in 
multiple disciplines of yoga, most forms of meditation, secular or non, um, Muslim prayer five times a day, your, your goal in that prayer is to point towards Mecca and praise Allah and blessed be his name and get back on that journey, right? With him, make sure that you're one with, with Muhammad at the holiest site on earth, right? Um, when you have longer festivals like Ramadan or, um, Passover or Easter or Christmas, the goal there is to recreate a situation similar to that original creation myth so that you can be transformed back there and have some kind of experience with deity, right? Your soul's rejuvenated. You have come back to Mother Earth. You whatever, right? There's something that happens in there that you need as a human being that separates you from everything else on this planet, okay? Um, Yeah. So... One of the other places that I really kind of like got into this idea of like original creation myth. Um, So let's back up. A myth is not, uh, let's see, in the literary sense, it tends to be um, a fantastic story that holds no truth but is allegorical, right? In comparative religious studies, however, a myth is any ritual, ritually told story, right? So when I say creation myth, when I say whatever myth, please don't take that as me being derogatory. Um, that's quite a high honor, actually. Um, each of us, in fact, we'll take a little side tour here. Each of us, in fact, has our own creation myth, like the story about how we were born and raised and the story we tell ourselves about how our personality developed and our likes and our dislikes and our interests and how we ended up in the job we're at, how we met our significant other, um, how we formed the family that we have right now, right? Or how we are a product of the family that was formed before us. Um, We as Americans have a creation myth, one that is getting rewritten every day today, every day right now. Um, because we, we realized the myth that was created was the white man's myth, right? And there's a whole lot of parts of it that um, have been left out. And that's, that's typical of, a, of any creation myth. You're not telling history. You're telling ritual or oral history, right? Which does carry with it allegory and transformation and the weight of the story needs to match up with whatever physical elements of this ritual need to happen in order for the person in the modern era to be transported back to the ancient era, Okay. Um, however, we as a non-homogenous group here in America um, need a non-homogenous creation myth. The one that we started with, it's not going to work anymore. Because um, there's so many other parts of our history that can be transformative for not just, not just the white man, but for every other people that is here, right? Um, yeah, so I, I am interested in watching... W- how the narrative of America unfolds and gets reformed during this process. We're in an identity crisis and that's okay. That's when new creation myths get, um, get formed and how we ritualize those through holidays, celebrations, things like, um, Juneteenth, 
um, becoming a more national celebration rather than just a Texas celebration. That's part of it. Um, I've been revisiting some essays on memory and history in Southeast Asia and how um, political commemorations or like national commemorations help solidify a cultural memory or help erase it. It's a fascinating side tangent, which we'll get into eventually, I promise. Um, But uh, Joseph Campbell and the Power of Myth is another resource that I highly recommend um, you look into. You can either read this or yeah, by picking up the book it's or you can just watch the um the interview with bill moyer on youtube actually because <laughs> it started out as like a six-part series and then got transcribed so he talks about that eliade talks about that and those are two resources that i highly recommend um i had a professor once who um who I just loved. And we had all kinds of these conversations about, um, what makes a religion. And he, he accused me jokingly of really needing a functional definition of religion. Like that's what I believed in. Like, where does the rubber meet the road? Um, we talked about this a little bit, like, what does it do for me? And that led to an interesting paper on this new phenomenon within kind of the religious spiritual tapestry of America. Um, there's a, there's an emerging group that kind of lines up with millennials, kind of later Gen Xers. Um, we're not quite sure about Gen Z. We'll see how that goes. Um, of people called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, meaning they're non-affiliated. So, and you can find this, uh, the Pew Research, um, study group did a whole study on this, um, on religious life in America. And what they found is people in this age group are leaving organized religion, but identifying as highly spiritual. So there's a whole group of people that are leaving the religion, the religious institution, I'll say they were born into, but like going out in the world, still being like truth seekers or ritual seekers, um, and putting together kind of a hodgepodge of, like self rituals, sometimes rituals driven by commercialism and like religion or um, rituals outside their religious tapestry that they're putting together in their own form and they're creating highly personalized religion. Um, I went so far in my paper as to um, define a few things, atheism as a religion. Um, it matches all of the criteria and American politics is the new religion. Um, less and less you find the political arguments based on fact and more on belief, right? And it's fascinating to watch people's Facebook conversations and they support my thesis. Anyway, um, so that that's another thing to kind of keep a pulse on is if you are in this stage of religious identity crisis, remember that humans are inherently ritualistic. Like we have been doing this forever. Actually, there's a book called God by Reza Aslan, who is incredible. Um, and he talks about this. He's, he talks about how, um, man made God in man's image. He's like a super man. Baha. Um, he had all the things that man wanted to aspire to, which you know, if you go back and look at religious history, it's not that different from, um, from the narrative there either. Um, but he talks about this going from, um, 
from a traditional Muslim to an atheist and back to a Sufi, which is like the high mysticism level of uh, Muslim and he just, or of Islam. And he just like, he just laid it out so plainly that if you are seeking for this kind of um, transformative experience in your life, you can find it. Like you're not beholden to traditional institutional structures. Um, you can certainly go back to them and find them. Um, every doctrine on earth supports a high mysticism or a high holy day level of ritual that is not necessarily for the lay person, but it's for the, um, for the highly devout, right? So you get, you get monks, you get, um, bodhisattvas, you get Sufis, you get, um, elders, right? Um, even, even, you know, young 20 something missionaries in the world. Right. So what I want to encourage us all to do is just pay attention this week to those liminal spaces that maybe used to exist in your life before everybody went on lockdown and you need to recreate somehow, right? Like some of the most base level ones for me are, and we talked about this last episode, but like getting up in the morning taking a shower or stretching, taking a shower, drinking a glass of water, taking my morning vitamins, which I am terrible at to begin with. Right. Um, but I only remember cause in a certain spot on the way out of the bathroom when I'm done with my shower, right? Like it's, you set your life up like this. So you remember, so you don't forget things. And that's, that's ritualizing your experience. Um, when I was really good about going to the gym, I'd get out of work. I'd come home from, I wouldn't even come home. I'd go straight to the gym because I had all my bag, my stuff in my bag with me. And I had a routine that I went through and it was very intentional. It was, I went to the locker room first. I changed clothes completely. Then I took a shower and or just like rinsed my hair. And then I went and worked out, came back, stripped down, took a shower, went to the dry sauna and meditated for 15 minutes. And then I put on different clothes again, went home, went straight to bed. I have never slept better in my life than when I intentionally ritualized that process. And it took me about a month of like going, you know, to the gym, finding the wrong, like finding I had the wrong stuff in my bag or like finding I left my sports bra at home or left my socks in the car. Like it was just a hot mess. But like I, I knew that I needed to make that an intentional mind mindset shift. And so I made sure that I had physical things there to remind me, like, I'm no longer at work. I need to shut that off. I need to get prepared for bed. I need to get all of the pent up aggression through the day out. And then I need to calm way down and get into a space where I can sleep and fall asleep immediately. Right. Um, so pay attention to those kind of like secular routines and see how you can either put some back in your life. Um, I, I laughed when we first got sent on, on lockdown, our COO sent us an email and he, he said, make sure you like you, we're going to encourage you guys to work from home. We're going to send you all home. Nobody's going to be back in the office. Um, make sure that you still get up in the morning, you shower, you get dressed for work. And we have a fairly strict dress code at work. And, and we all laughed. I was like, there's no way on God's green earth. I'm going to put on slacks and a blouse to sit on my bed and zoom call with you guys. And I, so I didn't for like two weeks and it was terrible. I was like late to meetings. I wasn't organized. I just, it was awful. And then 
two weeks after that, I, I got up in the morning, I took a shower, I moved from like my bed to a chair and a desk, and my day was suddenly infinitely better. I was like, ugh, I don't want to admit that he was right, but I'm gonna have to quietly, and so now I'm doing it publicly for all of you guys. But yeah, so pay attention to those like kind of secular routines and see how you can like make a more intentional separation in your work home quarantine life. Um, and, and just create some liminal space for you, create some separation, create a a doorway between your two stages of life. And, um, next, next episode, we might talk about, get some ideas about how you intentionalize that, how you ritualize what you do in that liminal space. Okay. Um, I'm gonna, oh, let's do some housekeeping. I was like, I'm going to keep walking around the river. Let's do some housekeeping. So Housekeeping is this. We want to keep these episodes to about 20 to 30 minutes a piece. Um, once we get through these first few like setup episodes, we're going to have kind of a structure and we'll start with like a short story from the, from my week or hopefully at some point in y'all's life, your week. So you can send me your short stories. Um, a definition of the week, because there's lots of words and jargony things to know. Um, some history about an ancient ritual um, or, or a more modern religion or something like that. Just some history. How to take it and apply it to your life. This is where we get into like utilizing ancient ritual without appropriating culture inappropriately. And then some uh, Q&A um, questions that I've received. This goes back to that survey I sent you guys a couple years ago. Um, we're going to get those answered too. So... Um, yeah, so I hope this is fun and good and useful, and I would love your feedback. So send it to friends, send it to family, subscribe, and I will talk to you guys later.